Amen. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open to Romans chapter number 12. And uh, I hope you had a wonderful Christmas. I kind of feel with this weather, it's like we're celebrating Christmas in July, even though it's not. But um, I really hope you enjoyed your Christmas this, uh, this past weekend, yesterday and Friday. And, uh, and I can't believe this is, as John said, the, the last service of the year. And uh, as I was thinking, I had a whole um, message, different message that I was going to preach uh, this morning on experiencing Christmas, but um, I got up really early this morning and just did not have any, I don't know, peace about that message. So uh, this is one that I felt peace about uh, preaching this morning. So Romans chapter number 12 as our last message for 2021, uh, something that I preached before uh, a long time ago, but for some reason, I just felt like the Lord was leading this way. So, we are gonna we're gonna end with this uh, with this message this year, and uh, something that I hope will spring us into uh, not just some excitement going into the new year, but also uh, some decisions to be made before the new year that we can live out in 2022. And that's really what this message is all about. I've just titled it Surrendered, and I really want to talk about that, being surrendered. You know, um, nothing, and I mean nothing, can be accomplished in your Christian life unless you're surrendered. You can come to church, you can sing some songs, you can even help in a class, you can get involved in projects, but it all amounts to nothing if you're not surrendered to God. It's the surrender that brings lasting fruit. It's the surrender that makes the impact. It's the surrender that is the key to any kind of difference making that you'll have in your life. And can I say that as a Christian, every Christian should have a desire, should have a want to be surrendered. God cannot do anything with people that are not surrendered. God cannot do anything with a church that is not surrendered. God can do nothing with a pastor that is not surrendered. And God cannot do anything with any Christian that's not surrendered. D.L. Moody, an evangelist of the, 18th, or the 19th century, in the 1800s, he said this. He was challenged by a message that he heard from a preacher. And in that message, the preacher said, the world has yet to see what God can do with a man who is wholly consecrated to him. D.L. Moody, upon hearing that, said, God, if you will allow me, I will be that man. It is said that D.L. Moody reached more than a million people in his life. It is said that he brought revival to two continents, the one of North America, and he shook the continent of Europe for the gospel of Jesus Christ. All simply because he made the decision that he was going to be surrendered to God. Now, Webster's Dictionary defines surrender as to cease and desist to an enemy or an opponent. It means to submit to their authority. And God has always used men and women because they were surrendered. He's never used a man or a woman because they were talented. He never used a man or a woman because they were gifted. He never used them because they were intelligent. Anyone ever that has been used of God has been because they have been surrendered. It's the essential ingredient to which 
working for God flows. And we see surrendered lives in the lives of the prophets when you read about Samuel or Elijah. You see surrendered lives through those that gave their life, though they were not maybe prophets, but people like David or kings like Solomon and others. You, you see uh, the kings like Josiah that just decided to be surrendered to God and the way that God was able to use them. You see, even when the church started with the Apostle Paul or the Apostle Peter and the disciples that were with Jesus in that first century, how they began to live for the cause of Christ as they gave their lives because they were just simply surrendered to the cause of the gospel. Now this morning as we study Romans chapter 12, I just want to share three characteristics that you can see in others that makes them surrendered. Three characteristics that you ought to have in your life if you want to live a surrendered life as a Christian. I want you to notice what Romans chapter 12, verse 1 says. It says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. Be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Before we jump into what these characteristics are, why don't we pause and ask God if you would just bless as we study his word. Let's pray. Father, I thank you this morning for bringing us here to this place. I thank you, Father, because your word is true. And we can depend on it. We can stand on it. We can be firm. Because we know that what you say, you will do. I pray that as we study this passage, Father, that you would speak to each and every one of us. I pray that you would fill me with your spirit and help me to communicate the message you've laid on my heart. I pray that we would not just be hearers of your word this morning, but that we would be doers. I pray that in the next few minutes, I, I ask that uh, you'd keep us engaged and focused in your word, and that we might be moved by it, and that your spirit would impact our hearts and our lives. I ask this in Jesus' precious name, amen. The first characteristic of a man or woman that is surrendered to God is one that has a sacrificed body. A sacrificed body. You see in verse number one, he says that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice. I want you to notice this morning that what I mean by a sacrificed body, I mean that it is a total offering to God of who you are of what you have. The verb present in this verse means to present once and for all. When Paul is saying to the Christians at Rome, I'm begging you by the mercies of God to present your bodies, he's saying, I want you to give to God yourself once and for all. He's not saying to do something uh, continually, but this is the decision that you'll make once. And once decides that everything you have and everything you are belongs to God. You see, surrender is doing just that. It's a definite commitment of everything I have to God. Just like a bride and groom, when you go to the wedding and in that ceremony, they say, everything I have, I give to you. It's a promise. 
It's a covenant that you make between you and your wife or you and your husband. And you're saying, I, I'm committed to you. I'm surrendered to you. It's you and no other. In fact, we, we wear rings all the time on the ring finger so everyone knows I'm committed to someone already. It's her and no one other. It's the same thing when you're surrendered to God. It's, it's, it's a decision that you make once and for all and say, God, I'm yours. Everything I have, everything I am is yours. There's no turning back. I remember there was that song that you, we used to sing at, at camp and in Sunday school growing up. I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. No turning back. That, that's what it means to be surrendered to God. It's to say I'm yours and no one else's and I'm not turning back from that. I've made a definite decision. I want you to notice that Paul gives two reasons at least of why you should make that decision. He says, first of all, I beseech you or I beg you, uh, brethren, by the mercies of God. Before he even talks about the mercies, though, there's one little word that you can say it really fast and not even think about it. It's that word, therefore. He says, I beseech you, therefore. Now, there's a rule whenever you're studying your Bible You may know this rule. If you don't, let me give you this new rule then for you. That whenever you see the word therefore, you need to ask yourself, why is it there for? Right? What what does it mean? What is he connecting? You see, that's a connecting word. Uh, He's saying therefore. Usually we use that when we're we're, we're connecting something. Right? Um, You know, in, in, uh, you know, this past week, maybe talking with your parents, uh, you might have been like, um, you know, the PS5 has been out for a year. Therefore, Christmas is coming up and maybe, you know, I've been a good boy and I can get one. Uh, we, we use the word therefore to connect one thought with another thought. Now, this is the fourth time that Paul uses this in the book of Romans. He uses it in chapter 3, verse 20. And he's talking about sin and the condemnation of sin. And therefore, because there is sin in our life, we are condemned by that very sin. Therefore, because sin exists, it's in us and sin has to have a a penalty for it. Therefore, we are condemned. He uses it again in chapter 5 and verse 1, this time talking about the justification that we have. Because sin has a penalty, their penalty, that penalty must be paid. Therefore, Jesus had to die, not for his own sin, but for our sin. And therefore, anyone that comes to Jesus is justified. In other words, they're cleansed from that sin. They're declared righteous. In chapter 5, verse 1, Paul reminds the Christians in Rome, therefore, because Jesus died and you've accepted him, you have been justified. He uses it again in chapter 8 and verse 1, this time with the idea of security. Because Jesus has died and because he's your savior, therefore, he says, you have security. You have the Holy Spirit dwelling within you. In all of chapter 8, they, they, uh, some commentators have said that Romans chapter 8 is the Mount Everest of the Bible. And if you read it, it, it really reads out that way. If you just take time to read it, you'll, you'll see it really is an amazing chapter. But there in chapter 8 and verse 1, Paul uses the word therefore. And he's talking about the security that we have in Christ. And now for the fourth time in chapter 12 in verse number 1, he uses the word therefore. He's saying because 
God paid the price of that condemned sin that you had. Because you have been justified. Because now you have the Holy Spirit indwelling in you. Therefore now, he says, surrender. Therefore now you can serve and live for God. Therefore make the commitment. The Apostle Paul on this fourth therefore is calling you and me to make a decision. He said, because of all that God has done. But then he says, by the mercies of God as well. Not just because we've been saved from sin. Not just because we've been justified. Not just because we have God living in us. But just think about the mercies of God. This decision is one that is intellectually made. When you think about the mercies of God, you have to ponder upon the mercies of God in your life. About what God has done for you and in you and through you. Begin to think about God's mercy in your life and with your family. The mercies of God are unbelievable. In fact, in Ephesians chapter 4, he starts out, Paul says, by saying that we who were dead in our trespasses and sins were were we're held captive by sin in our life. Well, you get to verse number four, but he says, but God, who is rich in mercy, in which he saved us. It's amazing when you think about the mercies of God. And Paul says, think about the mercies of God when you think about giving yourself, all of you, to him. It's a total offering. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 18 says, What? Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost which is in you, which ye have of God, and ye are not your own? For ye are bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. The Apostle Paul, you can see over and over, whether he's talking to the people in Ephesus or the people in Corinth or the people in Rome, reminds them of the mercies of God. Reminds them that because of what God has done, therefore you ought to be willing to be surrendered to God. To make an intellectual decision of saying, I see the mercies of God in my life. I will follow him. I won't turn back. We find that it's a total offering, but not only a total offering, it is a living offering. He says there in verse 1 that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice. Now, this is kind of an oxymoron, right? Y'all know what oxymorons are, right? Where you purposely contradict yourself. Uh, It's just what Paul is saying here doesn't really make a whole lot of sense. You see, the people that are receiving this are people that knew about the Old Testament. Now, whenever you study the Old Testament and you study about the sacrifices, you'll find that Every sacrifice that was on the altar died. That's what the sacrifice was all about. Getting a lamb or getting a goat or or getting an ox and and, and slicing them, letting the blood flow. They put it at the altar and then they would burn it. That's what sacrifices, and they had different sacrifices. They had different kind of offerings, one to make peace, one for the covering of your sin. They had one for thanksgiving. They had all kinds of offerings that were offered in the Old Testament. But every time, it was dead. 
So a living sacrifice just doesn't really make sense. The only picture that comes close to this, I think, is found in Genesis chapter 19 with Abraham and his son Isaac. If you know the story of Abraham and Isaac, you'll remember that God came to Abraham one night and said, Abraham, I want you to sacrifice to me your son, your only son, whom thou lovest. I want you to sacrifice him to me. And the next day, the Bible says that Abraham woke up early and he got Isaac and he got some of the servants and they went and started marching up to Mount Moriah. And as they were getting close, the servants stayed behind and it was just Abraham and Isaac. And Isaac told his dad, he said, Dad, I see that we have the wood and I see we have the stones for the altar. He says, but where's the sacrifice? And Abraham told his son, God will provide himself a sacrifice, knowing full well that his son was going to be that sacrifice. And he gets up to the top of that mount of Mount Moriah, and he builds the altar, and he puts the wood, and then he begins to tie up his son. And Isaac, understanding what's going on, he's probably around 12 or 13 years of age at this point, allows himself a great picture of the Lord Jesus Christ, and he allows himself to be tied up, and he lays him there on the altar. The Bible says that Abraham was just about to kill his son with a knife, and the angel stopped him, grabbed his hand. And God told Abraham, now I know that thou lovest me above all things. Now I know that you're surrendered. Now I know that you're committed, Abraham. Now I know you're not turning back. And in that moment, right after, the Bible says that he begins to hear a noise, a bleeding of a lamb, a lamb that was yelling and gotten stuck in the bush there. And God said, you can use that ram as a sacrifice. And suddenly, Isaac, who was there on the altar, the picture of death itself was taken off that altar. And the ram was put on there. And they slit its throat and the blood ran down and the sacrifice was made. But look at Isaac. Isaac had come down from that place of death. That place where he was not supposed to get up anymore. That place where he was the sacrifice on that altar that no sacrifice had ever gotten off of. Here we see Isaac off of that. That's what we call a living sacrifice. One that has been made alive. Now today God is not asking you and me to get on some physical altar somewhere, no. But he's asking for you and me to commit ourselves and surrender and sacrifice our life and sacrifice who we are so that we might live for him. Galatians chapter 2 and verse number 20, Paul said it this way. He said, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me. And gave himself for me. That's a living sacrifice. That's one who has said, I am going to surrender. I'm going to commit myself. I'm not turning back. I'm, I'm getting off this altar not to live for me, but to live for you. Paul says, I beseech you, I beg you, brethren, by the mercies of God, present yourself as that living sacrifice. That one who is holy and acceptable. 
By the way, we've studied this before, but we're only made holy by Jesus Christ. We're only made alive by the Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. He is a new life. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. We have a new life in Christ. That's why we can be a living sacrifice because we've been made holy and acceptable unto God. Paul says it's just our reasonable service. David Livingston, a Scottish missionary, spent 33 years in the heart of Africa. He endured much suffering as he labored to spread the gospel and open the whole continent of Africa to know who Jesus was. This godly missionary once remarked, people talk of the sacrifice I have made in spending so much of my life in Africa. But can that be called a sacrifice, which is simply paid back as a small part of a great debt owing to our God, which we can never repay? It is emphatically no sacrifice. Say rather, it is a privilege. Anxiety, sickness, suffering, or danger every now and then with the foregoing of the common conveniences and charities of this life may cause us to pause and may cause the spirit to waver and the soul to sink. But let this only be for a moment. All these are nothing when compared with the glory which shall hereafter be revealed in and for us. I have never made a sacrifice, he said. Of this we ought not to talk when we remember the great sacrifice which he made for us who left his father's throne on high and give his life for us. That is a living sacrifice. Paul said someone who has surrendered is someone who has sacrificed all of who they are. It's a total offering to God. It's a living offering to live for God. This morning, God is asking you and I, as we end 2021, as we get close to beginning 2022, what are you surrendered to? What are you committed to doing in 2022? What are you committing to living after in 2022? God says, I want to see in you a sacrificed body, but... Not only that, you'll see a second mark, and that is a separated life. You get to verse number two, and he says, and be not conformed to this world. A separated life is one that is not conformed. In Ephesians chapter two, from verse 20 to verse 32, Paul talks about not being conformed to this world, about leaving the old man behind and living in the power of the new man. You find that he says lying and stealing and all of that kind of lifestyle ought to stay in your past. He said you ought to live the new life that is in Christ. In fact, when you look at that word, be not conformed to this world, the the Greek word there literally means to be squeezed into uh, a mold. That was the word that was used in the Greek during that time. They would make molds like we have today and they would squeeze images onto it like money and things like that and and the image would appear. And so Paul is saying, don't let the world squeeze its image into your life. Let God be squeezed and his image be what is reflected in your life, not the world's. 
Being not conformed means let's not let the world's philosophies, don't let the world's values uh, direct you in your life. The world will tell you, well, if you don't have this kind of income, you're probably not very successful. If you didn't have this kind of Christmas, if you didn't get this kind of toys, then you're probably not really winning in life. That's the world's values. That philosophy that says we ought to sacrifice everything just to get ahead, that's the world's philosophy. There's more things that are important in our life than money and possessions. There are things that matter way beyond this life that you ought to be looking for and surrendered to. I've said it often, but I'll continue to say it. I thank God for a member like Ray Hansen that already past the age of 50 heard God calling him and saying, hey, there's some kids in a little city on a border town called Reynosa that, that needs somebody. I'm glad he didn't say, well, I'm here in Dallas. Seems like life's pretty nice in Dallas. Cowboys are winning Super Bowls. That's how long ago it was. Glad he didn't just simply say, but I'm, I'm kind of comfortable, God. I got a nice house here, God. I'm already working in a Christian school. What else do you want from me? No, that's, that's, that's not the attitude of a surrendered Christian. It's not the attitude of someone that says, my body ain't mine and my life isn't mine. I'm not going to let the world squeeze into me saying, no, no, you're way past that time to, to give your life for God. Come on, you're over 50 now. Learning a new language and moving to a, a country in an area you never even have heard of before. I mean, come on. But that's what surrendered people do. They don't allow the, the world's philosophy to be conformed in their life and the world's values. They, they live for something greater. And now midway through his 70s, Ray's still reaching kids. There's an orphanage there that keeps growing. But I wonder, Brother Ray doesn't make it to 86. Who's there that's going to continue that? Where's the next surrendered person? Where's the next one that makes the decision, I'm not, I'm not turning back? I might be a little bit older. And it might cost me something, yeah. But I'm not going to be conformed to this world. John said to the people there at Ephesus when he was ministering to them, he wrote saying, love not the world. Neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of this world. And the world passeth away and the lust thereof, but he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. Something beyond here. Something beyond being conformed to just something so temporary. Be conformed to the eternal. But notice a separated life is not only one that is not conformed, but it is one that is transformed. This is the word metamorphosis. It means being changed from the inside out. And by the way, God's changing always starts from the inside out. 
We live in a society that always wants to change from the outside in. The world's philosophy says, well, change their environment and then they're going to change. I hate to tell you, you can change the environment and still the nature doesn't change. It's just kind of the world we live in and who we are. Change cannot happen from the outside in. Because, well, if you just put a suit on him, they'll, they'll start behaving. No, they won't. Real change always starts from the inside out, and there's only one that can change from the inside out. There's one that has that power, and his name is the Lord Jesus Christ. There's only one. That means transformation. Changing our hearts to begin to control our bodies and our actions. Colossians 3.1 says, If ye then be risen with Christ... If you've had that inward change, then he says, seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Paul, talking to Titus, said, for the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching them this, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly and righteously and godly in this present world. Living a life that is transformed transformed then I want you to notice that someone is who is surrendered as a body that has been sacrificed and given a life that has been separated but then there's also a mind that's been segregated I know that word elicits a lot of different kinds of thoughts and emotions. We used to live in a country that was very segregated. By that, it means that there were certain people groups that could not mingle or mix with other people groups. For many years in this country, our schools were segregated. In other words, black people could not go to an all-white school. Segregated just means separated of, of uh, the way that is mixing, having nothing to, to be in common or work with. Now, God has said, if you're going to be surrendered to me, you need to surrender your body, everything you got, your facilities. But you also need to live a life with a different kind of purpose. But then he also says, you ought to have a different kind of mind as well. He says, by the renewing of your mind. The renewing of your mind. That means you need to have a new thinking. It is changing in your understanding of God's moral and spiritual vision to that. That pleases him. It's not just an outward conformity to something that we know is right and good, but it's that inward thinking and that inward heart to make a life completely new. The greatest example of that is found in Philippians chapter 2. The Lord Jesus Christ himself, it says this, it says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant was made in the likeness of men and being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself 
and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. It's a mindset that was different that Jesus had. Jesus wasn't too busy to help people. Jesus wasn't too busy to love people. Jesus wasn't too busy to live for what matters and what's important because he had a mind for it. Because in his mind, he had decided he would humble himself. He had a different kind of thinking. While the world says, man, if people serve you, you've made it. If you're the boss and you've got all these underlings, that's the way to live. Jesus said, I have not come to be served, but I have come to serve others. And whosoever shall be greatest in the kingdom of God shall be the servant of all. It's a different thinking. It's a different kind of mindset. The, the Christian who is surrendered to God has this mindset. It's a new thinking, but it's also a new desire. It's one that longs for something greater. I've often had to ask myself, what is it that I long for in this life? If genies did exist, and I was lucky enough to be the Aladdin that found the genie and rubbed that lamp, what would I ask for? Let me ask you something. What would you ask for? Would it all be all about money? Would it be something more than that? What would be the purpose that you could wish that you could accomplish or be remembered for? You see, a surrendered person has new desires. Celestial desires. Abraham, it says in Hebrews chapter 11, look for a city not made by man, but by God. Whose foundation was made by God that is eternal. Hebrews chapter 12, the very next chapter says, Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight in the sin which does so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest ye be, we, be wearied and faint in your minds. Paul was saying, listen, there's a new desire. Jesus ought to be the desire of your life, looking unto him, the author and finisher of your faith. See the example of the mind of Jesus and say, God, that's the mind I want. Because that's the mind of someone that is surrendered. Over and over, Jesus told the disciples, I've not come to do my will, but my Father's. Even in this darkest hour when he's praying, right before the cross in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he's sweating great drops of blood, knowing the suffering he's about to endure. He says to the Father, not my will, but thine be done. Brigaded mind. A mind that has a new thinking and a new desire. 